But uh, how's everybody doing this evening? Doing good? Well, obviously, I'm not Clint, um, but I have the opportunity to get to share uh, the message with you this evening. I'm going to give you a couple of uh, things that you should know about me before we endure the next 30 minutes together. One, um, I am what I like to call a hollaback preacher. So please, please, please don't make me feel like I'm standing up here by myself. If you, if I say something you like, if I say something that encourages you, feel free to say, that's good. That's for me. You can even look at whoever you came with and say, that's for them. I don't care what you say, but just make sure I don't feel like I'm up here by myself. Can we do that together? Can we agree on that? I'll say this before I get any further about your pastors. I think y'all have some of the best pastors in the entire world. Um, Pastor Clint specifically has become one of my uh, very, very best friends. Um, and there's some things that you just, you're able to do as a pastor that people think that you're good at. Like, you know, well, yeah, a pastor should be decent at preaching. Or a pastor should be good at praying. Or a pastor should be good at meeting up with people. But sometimes people don't always think, well, that pastor is just really good at being happy all the time. And your pastor, Clint, brings more joy than any human being I've ever seen. I, I literally cannot be around him and not laugh. He, he just, he has literally been a godsend to me uh, in this season. Uh, me and my wife, we moved here in December to be the youth pastors over at uh, Indian Lake Peninsula Church. And there's been many moments where I've walked in a coffee shop and just seen Clint sitting there, which is where you can find him literally most of the time. Um, but I walk in, and I'll just sit down and he'll look at me like, dude, what is wrong with you? And I'll just, I'll just lay it out for him. And he's like, well, good thing Jesus is still on the throne. Amen. And I'm like, well, you're right, but I need you to feel this with me a little more, but you cannot be around him and not just have your spirits lifted. And so I just, I think sometimes we show up every single week and, you know, you get familiar with the person that's in front of you and you may lose sight of how amazing that person is. Uh, but Pastor Clint and Pastor Stephanie are two people that you are, you are blessed to have them as your pastors because the way they love you. I hear so much about you, uh, every single other day of the week. Uh, they're praying for you. They believe in Oasis. And I was telling your team this, um, or about 3.30. I was saying, and I think I can say this to everybody in the room, um, but because of the way I hear Clint talk about Oasis, but the way I feel God moving in Oasis, um, you're going to want to be a part of what God's doing here now. Um, so don't wait, you know, a few months from now or a few years from now to be, well, maybe we're ready to be a part of serving or giving or being a part of what God's doing. You're going to want to invest now because like I told the team um, earlier, there's going to come a moment where you're going to want to look at each other and say, I remember when. I remember when it was, we were meeting at Centerpoint Road Church and we just believe in God for something that we felt him calling us to, but we couldn't see it yet. I remember when. So if you are on the fence about serving or being a part of this church, do not, do not wait any longer. But I'm going to bring a message to us um, this evening out of a scripture that is not uncommon. Um, but I'm short on a lot of things, as you can tell. Um, but one of the things I'm not short on is passion for Jesus. Uh, my life was radically changed in college. Um, I didn't grow up in the church, didn't know nothing about Jesus. And 
Um, had some friends tell me about him. I prayed to receive him. And ever since then, I've just been trying to walk in what he's called me to do every single day. But I, but I get really passionate about Jesus because I think the Bible, uh, I believe Jesus can radically change your life. And he not only just wants to change your life, he wants to change the lives of every single person that you come into contact with. And he has given us a vehicle, a plan A to do that, to go into the world and do that. And that is the local church. And so that's why I love church plants so much because y'all, y'all are the SEAL Team 6 uh, of the local church. Y'all are the ones going in and saying, hey, nothing's here, but we're going to make sure something's here. And so I tell Clint all the time, I'm like, man, I don't have enough faith to be a church planner uh, because it takes a insane amount of faith to say, I'm not going to be a part of what, something that's already happened. We're going to go and, and sow a new seed. And so I get to live vicariously through them. But this message that I'm preaching on is is really... The hope is that we would all take this banner individually and that we would go out just just this evening with a different perspective of what it looks like to to try and to advance the kingdom of God. Um, at the end of the day, if I say something you don't like or you just don't like my preaching, it's okay. Clint's a better preacher than me anyway, and he'll be back next week. So it, it's okay. No harm, no foul. But I'm going I'm to talk to you like family tonight. Is that okay? Family, how many of you know family talks to each other a little bit differently, right? Like, like if, if, if an acquaintance comes in the room and is wearing an outfit that looks ridiculous, you're probably not going to say something, say nothing. You, you may wait till you get in the car and be like, man, that looked ridiculous. But if like your brother comes to the door, the first thing you're saying, you're going to look at him and be like, boy, you look dumb. Like, you're going to have no hesitations of saying what you really feel. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to talk to us like family tonight because I think I don't want to play any games. I think this is this serious, and, and I want, I believe Jesus has a word for us tonight. So if you have a Bible with you or you got the Holy Glow with you, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is just two verses. It says this, Jesus speaking, it says, When he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. I'm going to preach from this idea the remainder of the time tonight, no one else is coming. No one else is coming. I heard Pastor Clint say last week that if you take good notes, you get moved to the front of the line in heaven. So let's go ahead and be a people that we're taking notes, we're engaging. How many of you got your note sheets with you? Hold them up in the air. That's what, that's what I'm talking about. Wave them in the air like you just do care. That's what I'm talking about. Take notes. No one else is coming. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we would live uh, and leave changed by by the truth of your word. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, any big movie people in the room? A couple people? Uh, anybody love war movies? Okay, there we go. That, there's, a, there's a better reaction. I love, I love movies, um, but I really love war movies. And I think I love war movies more because my wife doesn't like to watch war movies. They give her anxiety. She just can't do it. Um, so when I do get to watch a war movie, I, I love it. Um, but my favorite war movie is called, it's a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. 
Yep, a couple people have seen it. Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge tells the story of a guy named Desmond Doss, who is my literal hero. But Desmond, uh, long story short, um, enlisted in the Army after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, World War II. And what's interesting about Desmond is Desmond, because of his religious beliefs, uh, is a pacifist by nature. And he wants to help. He feels compelled to help. Feels like because of his past and different things he's went through that that's really the role that he can fill is to be, is to be a, a medic. But he refuses to carry a weapon. So he, he's, he goes through all the basic training, everything you need to, to serve in the military, but he refuses to even carry or train on a weapon. And the military actually tries to get him kicked out. Um, they tell him he's crazy. Uh, they go through all of the different processes that you could go through to try to get somebody kicked out of the military. Um, but long story short, he, he, he remains. And so kind of the climax of the movie happens on a, uh, in a location called Hexall Ridge. And so the movie's kind of unfolding. You see Desmond doing what medics do. He's, he's a part of, uh, of advancing the, the, the enemy line or pushing the enemy lines back. And so he's moving with his unit and they kind of, because of, you know, the nature of the battle, I'm not a, you know, a war technician, obviously, but because of the nature of the battle, they end up having to stay there overnight. Well, what they didn't see coming was that the Japanese launched a counterattack that caught the U.S. by surprise. And so because of their positions, it decimated the American forces. And so the movie picks up where Desmond's in the middle of this field. And he looks left and looks right, and comrades are injured. But he doesn't have a weapon. He can't fight. It's just him. And so because of the fact that he's a medic, what Desmond tries to do under the cover of the night is get his guys back to safety, which is on the other side of the ridge. So you literally see in the movie Desmond going under the cover of the night, grabbing, grabbing one of his brothers, and somehow, someway, either dragging him or picking him up, carrying him back to safety to this ridge, and then lowering them down with a rope. And what's cool about this, and my favorite part of the movie is, every single time he would go and grab somebody, he'd get to the ridge, and he wouldn't look for a way to be finished or try to figure out how he could get out of the out of the situation. You get this real close-up shot on his face in the movie, and he prays this prayer, and he says, Lord, just let me get one more. And then, and then he rushes back into the field. And he goes back and he gets another one and he brings them back and he lowers them down. And each time he goes and gets someone, he just prays the same prayer. Lord, please let me get one more. When day breaks and the American forces wake up at the base of the ridge, they think they're going to wake up and just see their unit destroyed. Well, what they wake up and see is that the same medic that they tried to get kicked out has, through the night, retrieved dozens of men and lowered them to safety. I love the movie because of how powerful it is, but I think as I was thinking about the movie and thinking about this message, the truths were the same. See, Desmond's act of, of, of bravery was because he realized no one else is coming. 
Nobody else is getting on this ridge to save, the, save these guys in the middle of the night. There, there is no plan B. I, it's me because no one else is coming. If not me, then who? And I think sometimes talking about the church and the, the, the kingdom of God, sometimes we in America have this, this tendency to think, well, when it comes to sharing my faith, Maybe somebody else, somebody else is surely going to come around. I'm, Brennan, I'm not, a, I'm not an extrovert. My, my neighbor is the extrovert. They love Jesus. I love Jesus too, but I'm the introvert. They're the extrovert. Maybe they will win our friend of the Lord at the, at, at the community cookout. And we have this idea of, well, maybe, maybe somebody else will come. Interesting stats as we talk about church because... Anybody heard this phrase, the church is declining in America? Anybody? It's thrown around all the time. You know, the young people are leaving the church by the masses. I hear that one all the time as a youth pastor. People are leaving the church. The church is declining. And I hear people say that, and I'm, I'm thinking, well, I, I understand what you're trying to say. But you're actually, it's actually not true. Because the church isn't declining. Um, did you know that 173 out of the 193 countries, the church is growing at three times the rate of the population? In all but 20 countries, that means there's, for every baby that is born, there are three more people being converted to Christ. In all but 20 countries, and guess who's in those 20 countries? We are. America. And I really do believe it's because we've gotten so comfortable with the way we do church. We've gotten so comfortable in our idea of church. And we've stopped living life with an urgency of the gospel or urgency of the good news of Jesus. Because maybe we're comfortable or maybe we just think someone else is coming to tell them. And we don't take it personally. Because when I look at Jesus in this, in this story in Matthew, what sticks out to me is that Jesus doesn't say there's a harvest problem. He says the harvest is plentiful. He doesn't say that there's a societal problem. He said there's a worker problem. And I think if Jesus were to look at the church in America today, he, he would say, you, you don't have a, a political problem. You, you, don't have a, you don't have a unity problem. You, you, don't, you don't have a generational problem. You have a worker problem. Because the same thing that he said all those years ago is true that that the harvest is still plentiful. As a youth pastor, I know this number. 93,000 teenagers in Sumner County do not have a church home. The harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. The workers are few. And I hear this all the time as, as a pastor. You know, people come up to um, me at our church and, I say, well, well, Brennan, you're a professional Christian. 
It's, it's your job to tell people about Jesus. Like, like, that's your job. And I'm like, well, it's not my job. Uh, because my job, as the Bible outlines it, as a pastor, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Essentially, what that would mean in, in our context is my job is to help you to learn how to do ministry. Now, because first and foremost, I'm not a pastor, I'm a son of God who has been bought and redeemed by the blood of Jesus out of a gratitude of that reality. Yes, I tell people about Jesus because because I have tasted and experienced a life that I've received that can only be attributed to Jesus out of that reality. Yes, I tell people about Jesus and I want every single person I know to 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 taste that. But my, my function as a pastor is not as this chief that tells people about Jesus all the time. No, no that is the role of the saints. That, that is the role of you. And so what this means for us today is that if nobody else tells the world about Jesus, who is? Make this really personal. Just ask yourself this right now. When is the last time you've had a conversation about your faith with somebody that's not in your family? When's the last time that you even told people that you followed Jesus? If not us, then who? I love this church. I believe God's going to do something amazing through it. But you know what, how, how that's going to happen? It's not going to be because Clint's a great preacher. It's not going to be because Stephanie's an amazing pastor. It's not going to be because we have the best kids service in town. It's going to be because the people of Oasis Church say, if not me, then who? It, it's my responsibility to tell my neighborhood about Jesus. It's my responsibility to go to work every day, not as a fill-in-the-blank, but as a missionary sent on mission in my workplace to tell people about Jesus. You know, being a student pastor, I, I get this all the time. Okay, Brennan, I understand what you're saying, but tell me how to do it. And so what I want to do is just really quickly share the how into sharing. Okay? So John 1, 14, gives us the, Jesus gives us the perfect model for what it looks like to live a lifestyle of evangelism or living a lifestyle of testifying to the goodness of God, okay? John 1, 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you have a Bible, if you're on your phone, you have the ability to highlight. I want you to highlight that. Full of grace and truth. So if Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews puts him, being the image of the invisible God, came into the world full of grace and truth, how then are we supposed to represent him to a lost and dying world? Full of grace and truth. Now here's what's, here's what's necessary about these two words. We throw these two words around sometimes. But here's what's necessary about them, okay? If you're taking notes, it's a good thing to write down. Grace and truth 
need each other. And you need both. Okay? Grace and truth need each other, and you need both. And I say that because what happens sometimes in Christian circles is we favor one or the other. Like you've you've encountered that person that's like, gosh, they are just, they are persistent that I know the truth. And they're just, uh, Brennan, just tell me the truth. Uh, if, the, if the truth doesn't feel good, it's, it's okay because it's offensive and it's the truth. Uh, or you've met the other person that's like, you know, grace covers all, which thank God the blood of Jesus covers the multitude of sins. We can walk freely and not have to live according to the old law, but can walk in this new covenant with Jesus. But sometimes these people that are lean more grace than truth or all grace and no truth, they live a life where you're kind of looking at you like, what do you stand for? Or what, what do you value? Like my, my wife says this to me all the time. She says, I want to make sure that as a Christian, I actually look different than the world. Because if the world can't tell me apart, then that, that's an issue. And so we, we can get in trouble when we favor one of these. And I know nobody in your church is like this, but sometimes I see people on Facebook and it's obvious which one they favor. Nobody in this church, I'm sure, is doing it does that. But, but, I, but I know sometimes you can tell a truther or a gracer by the first 15 words they post on Facebook. Usually it's, you know, I'm right, they're wrong. Uh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, thank God for the truth. Or the other side, it's like, well, I understand you love everything, but what do you stand for? Sometimes we can get these really confused. And I had a gentleman in our church come up to me one time, and he said, so, Brennan, I hear what you're saying about truth, but, but don't you want to be right? Like, don't you need to be right? And I said, no. I don't, I, don't, I don't really care about being right. I want to be effective. I don't care about being right. I, I, I want to be effective. And so when it comes to grace and truth, I try to be full of both because Jesus was full of both. That means that and the grace side of me, I have to understand that grace is great, but without truth, I'm not being mean. I, my, my influence is meaningless in their life if I don't have truth attached to my grace. And, and the truth side of my body, if I don't have grace, then everything I say is going to come across in a way that I don't want it to come across, and I'm going to burn every relational bridge that God might be setting up. Because I'm so sold on telling them the truth that I forget that Jesus came into the world full of both. I don't care about being right. I, w- I want to be effective. And Jesus is trying to get his disciples in this moment to understand that like, hey, the harvest is plentiful, but there's no workers. And I know when I stand before God one day, I, I want him to look at me and say, you are an effective worker. Yeah, sure, some people thought you were wrong, but you were effective. 
That's why we have to, when we're sharing our faith, be full of grace and truth. You know, depending on how long you've been in church, you've heard a million messages about sharing your faith, but sometimes we can hear it, but because we can't see it, then it becomes, you know, white noise, and we just leave and nothing changes. But I want to show you something real quick. Thomas, come here real quick. Joey, come here real quick. Just show you something. So that I, cause I, cause I want you to see it, okay? So Thomas, I want you to face this way. Joey, I want you to come right over here. Alright, back up a little bit, back up a little bit, back up a little bit. There we go, right there, alright? So, you can tell their toes are pretty much touching their heels, alright? So, just to give you a little perspective, cause I want you to see it, alright? A little over 2,900 people died in 9-11. 2,900. 2,977, I believe, is the actual number. Which means if you were to line those people up heel to toe, it'd be about six-tenths of a mile. So as I'm talking about this, I don't want you just to see a long line. I want you to think about, okay, I'm walking down this line and I'm seeing faces. And not only am I seeing faces, I'm seeing, I'm seeing faces with, with a wife. And I'm seeing people with stories. And I'm seeing faces with parents and kids and grandparents. Six-tenths of a mile. In 2004, a uh, massive tsunami hit Southeast Asia. Uh, 230,000 people were killed. If you were to do the same thing, it would be like this for 47 miles. 47 miles. That's about halfway from here to Cookville. So again, just think about this. Getting on the interstate and heading that way, and for 47 miles, you see face after face after face after face. 47 miles. That's 230,000 people. You guys can sit down. Appreciate you guys. Give it up for, for Thomas and Joey. 230,000 people, 47 miles, okay? Here's why I tell you this. That there's roughly about um, 8 billion people in the world, okay? 8 billion people. Uh, 2.4, if you were to ask them today, have a relationship with Jesus, 2.4. So let's just say, assume all 2.4 billion of those people have legitimate relationships with Jesus. And if the world were to end today or Jesus was to come back tomorrow, they know where they're going. They're going with Jesus into heaven. 2.4 billion people, which means there's a little over 5 billion people that do not have a relationship with him. 5 billion. If you were to do the same line thing, with that many people, it would not only go from here to the coast of California, but you would need to build a bridge across the Pacific to get to Asia. And then once you got into Asia and went all the way across and into Europe, you would get to the Atlantic Ocean and there'd still be people. You'd have to build another bridge just to put people in that line. And it'd go all the way across the Atlantic Ocean until it got back to the East Coast and made its way back here. And there would still be people that you could literally, if, if Joey was the start of the line, there would be somebody that traveled around the world 
that could be right here. Here's what's crazy. A little over 5 billion people. That line wouldn't just wrap around the world once. It wouldn't just wrap around 10 times. It would wrap around the world 120 times. 120 times. 5.4 billion people. That's how many people are without Jesus today. And maybe you're like, well, Brennan... What, what, what is that? What is that? I don't, I don't really know what that means for eternity. Well, let me just say, say it this way. That's 5.4 billion people that are walking around with no hope. They're walking around not knowing their purpose. They're, not, they're walking around not knowing that, that they are called, that, that God's chosen them. 5.4 billion people. Think about how many of those people we encounter every single day. That many people. And so so what do we do? Just kind of in closing, two quick things. Two quick things. Joey, you can come on up. Two quick things, because I love being practical. I want to give us stuff that, that helps us, okay? So two quick things in regards to this. What can I do to better reach the 5.4? First thing is this. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Pray that the Lord would give you these divine moments, these divine appointments. 1 Peter 3.15 says to always be ready to give a reason or an account for the hope you have. And the truth is, most of the times, we never know when that moment comes. I, I love this idea because every single time, that I've prayed for God to give me a moment to share my faith. He brings it oftentimes really quickly, but more times than not, it's in an uncomfortable situation that I was not expecting. I'm usually like, oh, God, this conversation didn't play out as much as, as I wanted it to be. We have to be willing, if we're going to pray those prayers, to make a dinner conversation awkward. Or to make a moment at the field with another parent awkward. We have to be okay with being the Christian that makes something really spiritual really fast. Because when we pray for God to open those doors and he does it, I don't want to be the one that he looks at and says, I opened it and you refuse to walk through it. We never know. And so I'm constantly, this is a great practice, practically speaking for us to do. When I'm in conversations with people, I'm just listening for the moment. I'm listening for a a hurt that's not resolved. I'm listening for a moment where they felt abandoned. I'm listening for a moment, maybe it was a family issue that, that they still are carrying with every day. I'm looking for moments to share the completeness of my God in their life. Just listening for those moments. Because when they talk about how their father left them, I'm like, well, good thing we have a father that never does. When they talk about uh, an issue in their life, or they talk about feeling outcast in their life, and I'm like, well, good thing we serve the God that came for the sick and not the healthy. It's the nature of our God, but we have to open our eyes and be willing to step into the doors that, God's op- that God opens. And the second thing is this. We have to get in the field. 
See, this is just my imagination. There's no scriptural basis for this. But I, would, I love to think that as Jesus stood on the edge of that field and said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Some of his disciples are probably like this. Yeah, it really could use some more workers. Who's it going to be? Because the opportunity is there to not go into the field even though you recognize the need. So I can pray for it. I can know it's there. But if I don't actually get into the field, what am I doing? Because we know no one else is coming. We have to get into the field. I had a pastor one time tell me this this way. He said, make sure that you're finding community that builds you up, that encourages you, that prays for you. Make sure you, you have a group of guys that are going to challenge you, that are going to make you better, that are maybe a few stages ahead of you in life that are able to speak some wisdom into your life. But you, you need to have what he called, you need to have a pool of lost people. So there's a group of people that you, you are a missionary when you're with them. You, you exist to point them to Jesus. We have to find these pools. And for many of us, that's why I'm envious of you today. Because many of you, that pool is your job. That, that pool is your workplace. That pool may be your household. And so I think the response for some of us this evening is maybe we need... Maybe we know we need to get into the field, but maybe we need to stop praying for God to take us out of the field that he's anointed us to be in in the first place. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I live this life for one reason. There's one thing that gets me every single day is knowing that every single day presents an opportunity or I can, I can populate heaven and I can plunder hell. Every single day I have an opportunity to make sure that I see somebody else with me on the other side. That, that, that's my only motivation. I don't want to, I think often about the moment I'm going to see Jesus face to face and he's going to put his arms around me. He's going to love me. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But I don't want to get to that moment and him look at me and say, you lived a comfortable life. And you were right about a lot of things, but you lived a comfortable life. Now I want to get to that moment and Jesus hugged me, tell me how proud of me he is. But then he swings open like this and he shows me a line of people where he says, look at all these people that are here because of you. Look at all these people that are here because you opened up your home. Look at all these people that are here because you opened up your life. Look at all these people because they're here because you weren't afraid to step into the mess. Look at all these people that are here. And it wasn't you, Brennan. There was nothing special about you. But you were willing to have a conversation. And all I needed was a moment to get to them. 
and the door was open. You stepped into it and that was all I needed to save them and change their eternity. Look at all of these people that are here. And not only are they here, but they raised their kids to love the Lord and their kids are raising their kids in the church and loving the Lord. See, there's a generational effect that can take place when we're willing to step into the field. 5.4 billion people. And that's just of the people that are alive today. Think about the generational impact that can take place. So I love your pastor. Your pastor is not obsessed with the, with the today. No, he's committed to building a church that will stand for generations. He's committed to sowing for a harvest that may not happen tomorrow, may not happen next week, but, but there will be a generational harvest that will come. 2 Corinthians 5 says this beautifully as I close. It says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view because at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. Some of us have people in our mind right now that we, we think one thing about them, but we need to stop evaluating them from a human point of view and begin to see them the way God does. How differently we know him now, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Verse 18 is my favorite. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Jesus so graciously reconciled me, Brennan, back to God. Put your name in the blank. He's reconciled you back to God. Before Jesus, you had no way back to God. You aren't just going to find your way. No, Jesus is the only way of reconciling you back to God. And as a result of that, he's given us the task of reconciling people back to him. That's our call. That's our... That's our aim. That's our job and no one else's. Final story. A couple weeks ago, I promise I'll pray after this. A couple weeks ago, um, my wife and I were at the Honda dealership getting our car worked on. And this guy came up, the older gentleman. And he came up and it was kind of odd how he came up and approached us, but he just walked up and he had this big, covered block in his hand and he kind of just put it down on the table really really hard and he said do you know what this is I said no I have no idea what that is and he unwrapped it he was like it's a full bar of silver so we're like okay and I, I guess by us engaging in that that was the open door he needed because he sat down and made himself at home for the next hour and a half but but he literally, I'm not kidding y'all, for the next hour, almost like a rehearsed speech, he was like, well, if you love that, you're going to love this. And he, he pulled out this vial from like the ancient Chinese dynasty with like oil in it. He was like, this is original. And he pulled out these coins. He's like, you know who's on that coin? It's Alexander the Great. It's a Roman coin. It's real. And just for an hour straight, he did that. Pictures on his phone. He knew facts. 
like nobody I've ever met. But come to find out, his name was Neil. And Neil lived in a retirement community around the corner. But Neil was an archaeologist for the Smithsonian. So he had all these different things that he just carried with him. He said, if you love these, wait till I go get my, my suit of armor. I'm like, well, Neil, we don't need that. I looked at Corey, I was like, we got to go right now. But Neil, at the end, he said something, and I just felt God all over it. Because he said, most archaeologists will come in and they'll show you slides. Show you pictures. Tell you about what history used to be. See, I don't, I don't do that. When I show up, I bring artifacts. I bring evidence. And as soon as he said that, I began to think about you and I's story. Because sometimes... The, the world has enough people trying to tell them and point to them, hey, this is, this is the way. This, this is the right thing, but you and I have a testimony. We have a story. We have scars. We have evidence. We have different things that have happened in our life that we just need one conversation with someone to say, hey, I know you may be struggling with the concept of a loving father right now, but let me just show you this evidence. I didn't think I could make it, but here I am. I didn't think she would live, but but she's living. The cancer diagnosis wasn't good, but they're walking. I didn't think my child would come home after forsaking their faith, but they're back and their wife's back and their kids are back and they're loving the Lord in the local church. I'm telling you, you and I, we don't have to think too long. We have evidence. We have a story. We have a testimony that testifies to the goodness of Jesus. And all he is doing is waiting on us to go out from here and tell people about it. You and I need to stop waiting on someone else to tell people about the good news and begin to testify to the good news that we've experienced ourselves. And so as we pray, maybe your response is simply, Lord, show me who I need to talk to. Lord, show me who I need to tell my story to. Maybe you're in here today and you're like, Brennan, I don't have a story because I don't have a relationship with Jesus. That can happen today. And in the same way that we read in 2 Corinthians 5 of Jesus reconciling you back to God, this can be your day of reconciliation back to your Father. All you have to do is believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on a cross and that he was rose and defeated death, hell, and the grave so that you and I can even be standing here today reconciled back to God. Brennan, I don't know much about this Christian thing, but I feel this. I feel like I need to give my life to Jesus. We'll talk about all the other stuff. We'll talk about the Bible. We'll talk about all the other stuff. But don't let anything keep you from saying yes to Jesus today. Because if you don't have that hope, you have no hope to share. So, Lord, thank you for these moments we have. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that you reconciled us and have charged us with the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, would we get comfortable in the fact that no one else is coming? Would we go out as the ambassadors seeking to see a lost and dying world come to saving faith in you? God, thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. I want everybody to stand to your feet real quick. Stand to your feet. Joey's going to lead us in kind of the second half of, of this song. But as he does that, feel free to just...
come grab me if you want to talk. If Maybe you just need to worship a little bit differently. But I love this song that God has got a revival. What would it look like, Oasis Church, if we linked arms and really left from this place and said, I got a testimony that needs to be told? What would it look like? What would Sundays look like? What would our lives look like if we, we lived in that way? So, Joey, take it away, brother.